Have you guys ever seen the, the uh, show Kitchen Nightmares? Who's seen the show Kitchen Nightmares? I kind of like that show. Uh, I haven't seen it that often, but if you guys have, have never seen it, basically the, the premise of the show is a master chef comes into a dying uh, restaurant and he helps the owners revitalize the restaurant. It's a dead kitchen. He helps revitalize it, bring it back to life. But I like it not only because it has to do with cooking. Uh, if you know me, I don't even cook, but I like the thought of cooking. Um, but I like it because there's so many leadership lessons to be learned, actually, from something as, as uh, seemingly unassociated with uh, leadership. But I did some research, and the vast majority of these restaurants, even though the owners receive help for a little while, they end up closing. Uh, so then the question is, well, why? What's going on? Because here they're getting world-class help. They revitalize the kitchen, at least for a little bit of time. But then, of course, they all head south. In my opinion, you know, the ultimate problem is not with skill. The ultimate problem is not with skill, but with character. Get someone with poor character into a position of leadership, and it's only a matter of time before an organization, whether it be a restaurant or some business, before that organization becomes the stumble. And you begin to see the cracks and the fissures that eventually will become massive when there is someone with poor character in a position of leadership. It's reflected in, let's say, an employee-employer relationship. You know, you, you've met disgruntled employees. Chances are they're disgruntled because their employers might not be the best fit for the job there. You can think about management styles. You can think about customer relations. The list can go on and on. In my opinion, one reason that, that, that these restaurants end up closing is because of character. And character is key for leadership. If this is true in secular organizations, how much more true is it? And indeed it is true that this is for the church. Character is key. And just think about it. God has designed the church in such a way where it is to reflect God's character to the world. So if the character of the leadership is suspect, then how exactly is God's glory and character supposed to be made known to the world through the church? So as the church preaches the gospel and lives its life changed by the gospel, it is to picture God himself to the world. So because the church is about displaying God's glory, the church needs, it is a necessity to have godly leadership. We need leaders who know Christ and who are Christ-like. Today, like last week, we look at church leadership and structure here in this hour. Um, and let's be honest, you know, these issues uh, aren't the most important issues regarding Christian salvation at all. But that doesn't mean that these issues are insignificant. I mean, what we're doing here in expositional preaching, we're just taking, we're just walking through books of the Bible and whatever God speaks on in that book we too are going to camp out on that. And so God found it this important to include something of leadership in the Bible here, particularly the characters of the leaders. And so as we walk through the book of 1 Timothy, so we come and look at this as well. The church that was to receive the letter that we continue to look at today, which is 1 Timothy, you can go ahead and turn there right now. Remember, this was a dysfunctional church. This was a disorderly church that was soon to draw to a halt because they had lost the gospel in effect. So what I mean, the gospel was supposed to maintain the pride 
place of first place, of, of central importance. But we see that the gospel was pushed out because of these false teachers. They had arisen in the church. They were teaching false things, things that led to vain discussion, quarrels. They're nitpicking about things that aren't even in Scripture. And it's that that becomes central. And so it pushes out the gospel slowly by slowly. And Paul encourages Timothy to right the ship, so to speak. Preach the gospel. But then also make sure that the church's leadership is in place. The right structure is in place. And not only that, but right people fill those positions of leadership. So we look at Christ's, we look at right leadership and the fact that it helps protect the heart of the church. That is Christ and his gospel. And so for some, for some reason, so many churches today simply assume that the Bible has nothing to say about this. And so there, those churches are sort of free, they think that they're free to sort of come up with whatever, whatever uh, structure they want and fill the positions with whomever they want. And so it's my hope that here scripture will speak to us today and help us determine what it looks like for us to establish a healthy church environment that exalts Christ in all we do. So if you're there, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. And here we're looking at the second office of the church. That is the office of deacon. Uh, last week we looked at the office of the elder. This week we look, we look at deacons. I'll go ahead and read that passage. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So those of you who are here, you know that a lot of these characteristics overlap with the characteristics of the elder, that is the pastor. So I'm not going to spend too much time actually camping out in each and every individual characteristic here. For today's purposes, we're going to be looking at this passage, yes, but then largely we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6. So basically we're going to take those two passages and figure out what exactly is this position of the deacon. Um, and remember here... Um, when we study the offices of the church, so church structure or church polity, keep in mind that what we are not going for is order for order's sake. What we are not going for is to simply continue a maybe a so-called tradition for tradition's sake. What we're going for is right order and carrying out in such a way that this church is enabled to preach the gospel and the gospel is promoted uh, and every church that deals with church structure, really, that's what they should be focusing on. The enabling and the promotion of gospel ministry in the local church. That's enabling and the promotion of gospel ministry in the church. And that's really what is at stake when you're talking about church polity, church structure. So as Christians, we believe that what deserves, again, center place in church ministry is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that thing that Paul says, you keep that front and central. And everything else around it just enables it and promotes that. And the gospel is, the gospel says, 
that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 1 says. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And of course, the reason why everyone needs saving is because we had rebelled against our God and our creator. And we earned for ourselves just punishment in hell. So the Bible calls this sin and the Bible says that we are sinners. For that rebellion, of course, we earn judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, as it also says in 1 Timothy, he, he's abounding in steadfast love. He sent Christ to take our penalty. So where we deserve his judgment, God, in his grace, sends Jesus Christ to take that punishment on our behalf. And then now everyone who repents and believes in Christ's work on the cross, they are forgiven of their sin. Christ takes the penalty and everyone who turns and believes in him will be forgiven. On the third day, God said, look, I am so serious about this. I really want these, everyone who turns and believes to be forgiven, that he raises Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, look, payment is done. Death is defeated. Jesus Christ has nailed all of those things onto the cross. So that's what the entire Bible is all about. And one aspect of the teaching in here has to do with church polity and church structure. And that too is related, as I hope uh, is made clear last week or was made clear. And then is also, uh, we're reminded about here today when we talk about deacons. So that's the message that the church is to be about. That was the message that the church had received, this church that Paul was writing to in the city of Ephesus. They had received that message and then now Paul charges Timothy to protect that. And he says, do that by finding men who preach the gospel and who live lives changed by the gospel to shepherd the church. He also says, look, find men and women who can serve as deacons or, or servants of the church who also believe steadfastly uh, uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we begin our topical study this morning, we come first to what is a deacon? So you've, you've heard me use the term, what is a deacon? So this is point number one. We're just going to define it. A deacon is a servant of the church. A deacon is a servant of the church. Um, now, let me just pause right there after I've already defined it. Um, you know, if you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to be a believer, uh, I hope that this sermon is helpful to you. You know, this is not really, again, a, a, some find this to be not very, uh, not a very riveting topic, church structure. And you may have heard, too, that churches have these things called elders and deacons. And for all you know, you know, this is really foreign to you. And so you might feel like this is cult-like. Just to, just to let you know where we're getting these terms from, we're getting these from the Bible. And we want to order ourselves and do exactly what Jesus Christ says, because this applies to us today. So if he says that our leaders ought to be elders, also translated, or you could call them shepherds or pastors or overseers, overseers is translated bishops, like all of those words, they all refer to the one office of the pastor. So here we're just trying to tell you, according to the Bible, what does Jesus say about this office of deacon? And then last week, this office of uh, uh, shepherd. So this deacon is a servant of the church. Literally, the word deacon in the verb form means waiting on tables. So you can very much think of like a deacon as one who waits on tables. He's like a waiter or a waitress. Um, and these are uh, and these deacons are supposed to carry out a task specific ministry, a task specific 
ministry. So those are the two offices of, deacon, of, uh, of the church. You have elders and you have deacons. So you have elders, you have deacons. There are no such uh, offices in, in the Bible that we know of that, let's say, people call a pope. It's not in the Bible. No such thing as bishops as we know them today, overseeing multiple um, uh, churches. Uh, we, we just don't see that in the Bible here as they are called bishops as we know, now know them today. There's no such thing as archbishops. I had the chance to meet an archbishop of Sydney and I had the chance to meet an archdeacon of Sydney. These were solid brothers, uh, solid evangelicals that were dedicated to preaching the gospel in a place that there are so few evangelicals. Um, but we had a friendly, nice discussion and I told them I didn't think that their position was defined in scripture. Um, even though, nevertheless, people might be able to helpfully carry out some of these duties. It's not really defined in Scripture. There's no office of archdeacon or archbishop. So to review, the first office is the elder, the pastor, the overseer. So that's just one who teaches the word of God to the congregation in a way that's helpful and builds them up. So there the responsibility is uh, preaching and spiritual oversight. The second office here is deacon, the servant of the church that fulfills some sort of task-specific role. Um, and I do believe that this, uh, according to Scripture, that this office can be filled by both men and women. So if you look there, 1 Timothy 3, did you notice there that there's a verse there that says, their wives, so he speaks about deacons, and then he transitions and says, their wives, uh, that's in verse 11. That also could be translated simply women. So in your, in your Bibles, there, there might be a footnote that says women. Uh, there is no um, possessive there in the Greek language. It just simply says women. So, and, and that word can be translated both ways, whether it be women or wives. Um, not only that, though, but Romans 16.1 speaks of a gal named Phoebe as a deacon and servant of the church. So it's no surprise that there a gal named Phoebe is called a servant or a deacon. I mean, you can turn through scripture and find any number of places where Christians are called servants. But here, what's unique is that this girl is called the servant of the church. But not only that, it's a servant of the church at a place called Sancria. So a number of scholars believe here when it's referring to a deacon of the church in a specific place that she's actually fulfilling a role of this deacon or deaconess. So I'm, when I say deacon, I'm basically referring to men and women. So a man can serve as a deacon, a woman can serve as a deaconess. Um, now again, I mentioned that we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3. We're also going to be looking at first, uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6. So it's interesting in 1 Timothy there, Paul assumes that we all know where the office of deacon came from. So what I want to do now is go back to sort of the birthplace in Scripture at least, to see where exactly uh, deacons came from. And so this is point number two, the birth of the deacon in Acts chapter six. Go ahead and turn there. I know a lot of you guys um, are probably sitting on the edge of your seat thinking about church polity, church structure. Just remember, just remember these things go to protect the gospel. Okay, verse number one. Now look and see what's happening here. This is where the, the office of deacon springs up. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what happens in the book of Acts is that the church is growing in number. The gospel is being preached. The spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. People are going around preaching the gospel and the church is just expanding. They're growing in number. It's an awesome, good time. Good things are happening. So there are good problems. The church is growing. There's also some challenges. Part of those challenges are, if the church, you can just imagine if we exploded, let's say thousands, all of a sudden, let's say our discipling ministry might look different, our small group ministry might look different, and it's going to take some time for us to catch up to the actual growth that we're experiencing. So it is, too, in terms of caring for these different widows in the daily distribution of food. You know, they didn't have our government system that we do today, where we have the option uh, if we meet certain qualifications of, let's say, food stamps and whatnot and things like that. Therefore, the church actually took on that responsibility. And so there is a daily distribution of food here. And what happened is that the Grecian Jews, so the Jews who had grown up in this Hellenistic culture, so culturally, uh, that might be somewhat similar to myself, let's say. I'm a Chinese-American. I grew up here in the American context. And let's say there were other Chinese folks um, from China, and they grew up in the Chinese context. And uh, there's one group is receiving the daily distribution, and the others aren't, at least the widows. So you had the Grecian Jews complaining, saying, look, we haven't received the daily distribution. But the Hebraic Jews, they are. So what do we do here? We don't really know why one group was receiving uh, the distribution of food and the other ones weren't. We just don't know. But try and place yourself in that situation in terms of how your heart would interact with, let's say, the other widows. Let's say you are one of the widows not receiving the daily distribution, and those other widows are. So you see certain things are threatened already of Jesus Christ's church. This is really important. The church culture is threatened. Imagine the ill will that might have crept up in your hearts towards those the other group maybe a little bit of jealousy you you want what they have maybe not only that but imagine wanting to be them man i wish i was a, a hebraic jew then i would get care for in the church you, right you can imagine this ill will uh, that's threatening the church here maybe you start resenting them maybe you get bitter towards them and maybe you're always suspicious of, is, is this prejudice going on? And some of us who have experienced some of this prejudice, you kind of know you experience it so much that when something happens, even though it might not necessarily prejud be prejudice or discriminatory, you feel like it is. And unfortunately, that's just kind of the way it works with folks who have experienced this kind of stuff regularly. Imagine, Im imagine your ill will possibly towards the leadership of the church. Here you've got the disciples who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then you, we all, or you all, might feel ill will towards the leadership. You start suspecting them of promoting this prejudice and discriminatory behavior. Or maybe, more mildly, maybe you simply say that they just don't care. And then if that's the case, what do you make of this teaching? Because here, again, they're heralding this beautiful gospel that proclaims to bring peoples together of different ethnic backgrounds into one man. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but one. So if we have ill will towards the leadership here, uh, you know, the gospel might be here, might be uh, given a negative witness by the way that uh, uh, people feel like they've been receiving care 
So here in Acts chapter 6, you see that, that uh, not only is the church growing, but they're in a very unique place. They're, a unique, they're in a unique place because they have great potential for unity. Even though these two different groups, you know, maybe they're not being cared for. We don't really know why, but imagine the unity that could come if they're both being fed, both being well taken care of, and ultimately all because of the gospel. There's also a great threat, threat to church culture. There's also an opportunity Satan sees and possibly seizes for great disunity. But it wasn't only a culture, it wasn't only the culture of the church that was being threatened. From the way that Acts chapter 6 was written, the very establishment of the church is at threat. The foundation of the, of the church was at stake. It says there, if you follow along, it says, And the twelve, this is what they did, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The question, why isn't it right? That's what he says there. It is not right. So the question we need to ask is, why is it not right? The answer is because they would have to stop preaching the gospel. So this burden had arisen amongst the church and naturally they're bringing this issue to the disciples. And if they were to give themselves to it, that would mean that the preaching of the word would decrease because they're going to be overloaded with with a lot of these responsibilities. And so it is not right because they would have to stop preaching. They have to they have to stop giving out the very chosen instrument that God says this thing is going to build the church. And so you go on and you preach it. And so they recognize that there are legitimate and good needs to be taken care of, but that the disciples are not to take care of it. So the disciples here are servants of the word. They're deacons of the word, if you want to call them that, insofar as they serve up the word. But here they carve out space to make sure that other people are going ahead and doing this. Because the very establishment, the very foundation of the church is at stake. So knowing that it's at stake, knowing that the culture is at stake, knowing that the foundation of the church is at stake, they draw together the whole church. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's the, that verb form of deacon, deaconing. Um, and so they say, let's call up deacons to do this. Let's call up seven men. Said, it is not right. Therefore, pick out seven men from among you. Whom we will appoint to this duty that is of deaconing or that is of serving and waiting on tables. But instead we will devote ourselves to prayer and to preaching. Uh, as I reflect on this passage, I'm encouraged to, to know that this church is a church that believes that the, that the word is to go out. And it's that thing that gives new life to people when the spirit is working alongside it. And so what it looks like for me practically is that you guys have charged me to preach the word of God. And so, you know, you guys know that there are, there are churches and pastors who might take, let's say, five days or four and a half days to carve out a sermon. That's not what I do. Uh, but if a church decides that a, that a pastor could do that, that's fine. That's their decision. Um, I choose to do my sermon prep on Thursdays and Fridays. And usually that bleeds over into Saturday mornings and then uh, every Sunday morning. But I choose to do my sermons towards the end of the week and to dedicate at least two days to sermon prep 
uh, and to reading, researching, putting these things together, to teaching the word of God in season and out and uh, out of season. That's my primary responsibility. And I choose to do other things like discipling, encouraging staff meeting, you know, things like that on the other days that I have. So I'm encouraged to serve at this church that understands the importance of preaching the word. So space is supposed to be carved out so that the ministry of the word would go forward. That's the disciples' responsibility, the elders' responsibility. And naturally, other needs, therefore, are going to rise to the surface. Good, legitimate needs. And so we have the solution there. So to summarize, there was, ch- there was a challenge, there was a so-called problem, a legitimate need, and the disciples called together the church to select from among them deacons, servants, to meet this task specific need so what is a deacon a deacon is a task specific servant of the church who ultimately helps to further the ministry of the word that's the deacon's overarching goal the deacon's overarching goal helps further the ministry of the word this is point number three the deacons help further the ministry of the word that's the overarching goal the big picture of goal Now, if you read through 1 Timothy, you understand that that's actually no surprise. So if the church is a pillar and a buttress of God's truth, then every every official office that serves this church, which is the buttress of truth, uh, will move forward that very truth. And it'll protect the and it'll enable this gospel ministry, this word ministry here. You know, in Christianity today. Thinking about service as deacons or servants of the church. Many churches encourage serving, which is awesome. It's great. Um, but some major tuning needs to happen in the discussion of service. So I, I've read a book. I read a book in the last six months that where the church, uh, this, these authors, the pastors of the church are encouraging service in order to grow their church numbers. So they say, look, if you're visiting with us, we want you to have to possess belonging in the church. Therefore, we're going to carve out a place for you to serve. And when you own it, you're going to want to join it. Um, Now, there's a number of things that uh, we could say about that. Um, But in Scripture, let's say here in Acts 6, right, the big picture, the big picture goal of service in the church is not about a sense of belonging, it isn't a sense of drawing crowds, really. It is about gospel ministry. And all soldiers of Christ, so to speak, are called to their stations in order to see that the ministry of the word would go forward to God's people. More disciples would be made through the word. And those, those disciples would start gathering together as churches that go on and preach the word and do those same very things. So, church, brothers and sisters, have you considered that your deacons... Help create an environment where the word can be preached every Sunday. In this church, we currently have a deacon of ushers and ordinances. Can you raise your hand? That's David. He is a deacon of ushers and ordinances. Now that really sounds cultic too, if you've never, if you're not familiar with it. Um, But what he does is he basically prepares baptism. So he fills the pool right behind me when we have baptisms, which we are going to have some in the next couple months. And then he takes care of, uh, you know, the ushers and he gets the, he makes sure that they have bulletins so that people are passing them out. So people know what's going on, um, as well as preparing the Lord's Supper. So the bread and the fruit of the vine, if you've ever taken the Lord's Supper here, really David has taken care of that, those things. That's task specific. Ultimately, so the word would go forward. 
Uh, we also have a deacon of music. Can you raise your hand? Okay, that's Mickle. Uh, Mickle puts together the schedule for the musicians here so that we can sing praises to God. So there the hope is that Mickle would not be glorifying uh, the schedule in itself, but ultimately the schedule would go towards ensuring that we have singers and musicians so that we all can be singing the praises of God. Um, so have you guys ever considered that your deacons here further the ministry of the word? If not, reflect on that and be thankful to God and thankful to them for the services that they fill. So when you get a chance, thank your deacons and really all the volunteers that serve here uh, because they help further the ministry of the word. So that's the overarching picture of the deacon, the overarching goal. They further the ministry of the word. But according to Acts chapter 6, there's also a practical goal, a very legitimate, good, practical goal here. Uh, this is point number four. Deacons help meet the practical needs of the church. Deacons help meet the practical needs of the church. First, they do so by, by meeting certain spots. They fill in certain spots. So there in Acts chapter 6, did you notice there that that's particular task? There is a particular task that the deacons are to fill. And they fill really whatever spot is needed in Acts chapter 6. is making sure that different groups of widows are receiving the daily distribution of food in an equitable fashion. But this here is primarily an administrative task and an important one. It is an important practical need of the church. And uh, what church wouldn't want to see our widows cared for here? I mean, just in chapter 5, I look forward to getting there. But there, Paul, he lays out 13 verses dedicated to churches and how they are to care for their widows. So if you find yourself here husbandless and you know yourself to be a widow... We, I look forward to figuring out how we as a church can care for you guys more practically and ably um, so that your faith would be encouraged and so that the gospel would be made known as we try and shepherd you like Jesus wants you to be shepherded. Um, so these seven men here were to be set aside for this specific administrative task. So again, our deacons are, are uh, task-specific. They fulfill an administrative task. Um, Again, we have those two deacons. I've also thought about creating a position of, uh, let's say, a deacon of hospitality. So you can imagine if, if we're serving, let's say, us 50 folks here and all this stuff needs to be prepared. You know, it could be useful to have an official deacon or deaconess of hospitality to ensure that this stuff is out here <clears throat> so that we can be hospitable. I've been in churches where we've had deacons of community outreach. So those deacons were responsible for sort of gathering opportunities uh, that are out there in the public. Let's say there's a cleanup day at Shabaram Park. The deacon of community service would be able to grab that and then sort of relay it to the congregation and then say, hey, look, there's this opportunity. Uh, let's try and schedule something. Let's try and get this thing moving. So there it's administratively helping the church, uh, let's say, for example, to take care of community outreach and to be involved there in that aspect. I've also been in a church that had a deacon of member care. Uh, and what this deacon did is he basically brought the needs of the elderly of the church or the shut-ins or the sick. And they said, look, we'd love to minister to these people who can't make it to church. We want to get them sermons, uh, audio sermons. We want to get people visiting them. And we want to bring them food and just say hello and let them know that they're cared for. And these positions ended up working out really well. So for us as basically a church plant, uh, it's really helpful for us to think about uh, what are, where are their legitimate needs and then how can we be fulfilling these legitimate needs? Maybe by creating certain positions, whether they be deacon positions or deaconess positions. Um, 
and then having people administrate uh, our helping. But just keep in mind, if you come with an idea, just be prepared that uh, me or Jeremy will ask you to fill it, uh, whether formally or informally. So deacons help meet a practical need of the church. Um, you, some of us come from churches that, uh, uh, you know, the deacons, let's say, they play more of an elder-like role. Uh, and, and for some reason, you know, let's take Baptist churches, for example. Uh, Baptist churches are kind of well-known for this. They take basically the, the position of the pastor or the elder, and they say that's called a deacon. Uh, but scripturally, I, I, that just doesn't make sense there. Why not call a pastor a pastor and a deacon a deacon? Um, and unfortunately, because of the confusion of categories, uh, in my opinion, what that eventually leads to is a confusion of job description. If Jesus himself is saying, look, I need pastors to shepherd in particular ways and I need servants to serve in particular ways, then you're like, okay, so am I an elder? Am I a pastor? Or what in the world is going on? Not only that, though, when you start basically confusing the categories of shepherd and deacon, in my opinion, what happens is you also start fudging on the qualities necessary to fill those positions. So, you know, again, just think the big picture stuff here. Church polity really goes to not continuing a tradition, but to protecting the gospel, enabling the church to preach the gospel and promote the gospel uh, through pastors who actually meet certain qualifications and who preach and then having servants who also or deacons who also meet certain qualifications, which we're going to look at um, right now. So we move on to point number five. Deacons are to commend Christ. Deacons are to commend Christ. We saw that deacons fulfill an administrative task specific role, but really nothing is ever merely administrative. If you're serving officially in the church, nothing is merely administrative. Always something is involved Additionally, when one is a servant of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, something's always more involved there. And this is point number five, deacons are to commend Christ. So did you notice there the deacon qualifications of Acts chapter 6? It isn't, first and foremost, functional qualifications, right? It's not saying, oh, look, there's this need. Okay, let's call out everybody with two years experience in supply chain management you know, getting all of the food and making sure that the thousands of people are, are actually receiving it. It's not, hey, do you have experience in the food and beverage industry? The problem, the challenge is our widows need to eat. The solution? Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Get men of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. This is interesting, isn't it? Again, there's this legitimate need and he goes after character. Of course, it's because God's church is to display his character. But even these deacons here are to be men who commend Christ in their character. So they need a good reputation. They need to be full of the spirit or men who are aligned with the purposes and the goals and the will, the characteristics of Christ. They need to be men who are bearing the fruit of the spirit. At least in Acts chapter six, it was men. We need they need to be wise men because they have to judge and they have to determine so the emphasis, just like last week for the elders, the emphasis is not on competency, at least here, but on character. Because for these deacons, they were to commend Christ as they fulfill their task of serving the church. So when they are supposed to feed people, it's never just about feeding people. It's about feeding people in the way that Jesus wants people to be fed. 
It's, it's, it's ensuring that Jesus' sheep are well cared for in this particular way. Here, we're thinking about you know, receiving the daily distribution. For the deacon, it's about seeing that resources are well stewarded, whether they be food resources, financial resources. So previously, we had a deacon of finance that was filled by Jeremy until he became an elder. Now he just sort of absorbed those responsibilities as an elder. Um, or even people resources. So sometimes deacons have to do this. And in it all, character is key. Go back to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here you see again, character is key. And again, many of these characteristics overlap with the elders' qualifications. You can look there in verse, in verse 8 of chapter 3. Here the idea is self-mastery in these handful of terms. Deacons likewise must be dignified or, and not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So they, they must be honorable people. And they have to be controlled in speech, controlled over possible cravings of wine and money. You know, if someone's uh, overseeing the daily distribution of food, you do not want the deacon to be skimming off the top, you know, taking a whole bunch for himself. You want someone who is trustworthy, someone who has, in fact, self-control. This deacon should be a firm believer. A firm believer. They must hold, look at verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So here this term mystery is used not as something that has not been revealed, but something that indeed has been already revealed. This is the mystery of the gospel. Someone who holds firmly to the mystery of the gospel, the truths of the faith, and he has to do so with a clear conscience, as opposed to the false teachers who had already shipwrecked their faith. The deacons also must be proven and faithful servants. It says there in verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So here this matches actually Acts chapter 6. The implication of Acts chapter 6 when the disciples say, choose seven men from among you. The implication there is that those men would be known. That they know their character is observable and they can attest to it. And so First Timothy says that uh, these men should be tested in their character, in their service, and then be appointed if they prove themselves to be blameless. Again, that's not perfect, but that's a man who is not marked by sin. He's proving himself to be blameless. And then he must be godly in the home. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife or otherly, otherwise translated or a one-woman man managing their children and their own households well. So they're, they're exhibiting godliness in the household and that's a good trajectory for how they're going to serve in the church. So character is key because a deacon should be commended for Christ or commending Christ in his service. It's pretty straightforward here. And this has application to the way that many of us think of leadership, doesn't it? Many churches, many of us here today, there's this instinct to, tr to trust what can be listed on a resume as opposed to character. We go for ability instead of character. So what this looks like is, hey, you know, this guy fills a position of high standing in the community. Let's make him a deacon. Throw him into leadership. If there's a CFO that starts attending our church, this chief financial officer, we say, shoot, let's make him a deacon of finance. Surely he is able. Or maybe this guy rocks at music or this gal rocks at music. Let's make him a worship leader. Someone has a background of public relations. Let's make him a pastor. The list can just go on and on and on. So we tend to trust what goes on a resume and assume character. 
But in the church, it just simply doesn't work that way. You guys know that just because the world might find you to be a good leader does not mean that that means that you're going to make a, a good leader of God's people. I mean, those are two diff- very different communities there. And if our gut reaction is to think, you know, uh, maybe ability trumps character, perhaps it reveals that we're taking our leadership cues from the world instead of from God. Um, so for the health of the church, it is important to rem- remember a verse like 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, you know, where Samuel's supposed to be looking for uh, the king. And God tells Samuel, you know, I'm, I have anointed one. And all of David's brothers sort of go before him. And he looks at them. And they're uh, most likely tall and strapping young men, competent leaders, strong men that you would naturally think is a leader or would be a good leader. And God just says, no, not him. No, not him. No, and a number of these guys just pass by. And God says, isn't there a shepherd boy out there? You know, the smallest runt of the crew. Where is he? Because I want him to be a king of my people. A man who would go on to be a shepherd after his own heart. First Samuel 16, 7 says, this is the Lord teaching Samuel what to look for. He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So if our charge, if the church's charge is to make disciples of Jesus then the church leaders must be men who know Christ, men who are Christ-like. And if, they, and if a man or a woman is to serve in this position of deacon, they must know Christ, and they too must be Christ-like. So I'm, what I'm not saying, so don't hear me say that ability should never play a factor. That would go against the fact that Jesus gives gifts to his people. Uh, ability is important, but I'm simply underscoring here what God is underscoring in this passage Acts chapter 6, as well as 1 Timothy 3, that character needs to be emphasized because the church's servants, whether they are serving um, the word or waiting on tables, they are to commend Christ in all of their service. Thinking about um, commending Christ in service, you know, think back to Acts chapter 6, and you see how important character is. I mean, have you guys ever been disgruntled? Or you guys ever helped someone who has been disgruntled? They feel like there has been unfair treatment. If so, you know that your actions, let's say when you're disgruntled, they send out shockwaves to the people that you're dealing with, right? They send out shockwaves. And so these deacons are supposed to insert themselves into the shockwaves of the discontent. And so they're supposed to, in the midst of these shockwaves going on between the church, back and forth, back and forth, maybe between these widows here, they're supposed to insert themselves into the paths of the shockwaves in order to absorb some of it. And so in so doing, they are commending Christ. They are, they are very much like shock absorbers to the congregation. So are they to distribute food? Absolutely. But they're also supposed to diffuse conflict when needed. So while this is administrative, they are to commend Christ in their character. Uh, And of course, they're going to be caring for other people just like any mature Christian would. So that's why the church needs men and women who are of good repute. In Acts chapter 6, full of the spirit and men who are wise. So helping settle the the nerves of the congregation as well as helping meet the needs of the congregation, requires men and women who are godly. Now, again, this should be, be pretty obvious. 
If you want somebody helping you, you want somebody who is mature. You want someone whom you can trust will have your best interest in mind. That they want you to love Jesus even in the midst of some difficult situations. So that's why the qualifications are what they are. So these deacons, keep in mind, are to stand in stark contrast to the false teachers who were loose in doctrine. They were doing things out of impure motives. And these were false teachers who had fell into the very condemnation of the devil. And these deacons, in verse 13, go ahead and look there, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. These deacons, on the other hand, it says they gain a good standing in confidence in the faith. So as they are walking in godly ways and doing godly things, here Paul is encouraging them, as opposed to those leaders, these leaders gain a good standing before God as they continue on the right path. That's really what he's talking about there. He isn't saying that deacons somehow work for their salvation or that deacons somehow have a special prize as opposed to all the other Christians, even over uh, the elders. He's simply saying, look, if you're walking in godly ways... If you're walking in godly character, if you're believing in the gospel, if you're holding fast to the truths of Jesus, you gain a good standing because these things please God and you are on the right path. That's what he's making. That's the point that he's making there. Um, so this is the this is the task of the deacon. And this is a definition of the deacon, one who serves in a task specific way and he serves the congregation in an administrative function, uh, but then also commends Christ in his character in the area that he's serving in. To conclude, how crucial is it for the church's leadership to know Christ and to be Christ-like? But then again, we would expect nothing less of God's church because God intends for the church to be set on a hill, a city on a hill. He intends his church to be a light in a dark place whose mission is really to draw attention to the Savior. So when we have leadership functioning like God calls us to, it actually, moves to go, it actually moves to protect the gospel, to enable word ministry, and to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do so by having men who meet certain qualifications, be the preachers and main shepherds of the church, and then also having godly men and women serve as deacons in the church, servants of the church. So another piece of practical application, let me encourage you guys to pray for the leadership of First Baptist Church. Pray that we would indeed be godly men and godly women who are captured with the gospel. Godly men and godly women who are living according to sound doctrine. Who commend Christ in our character as we fulfill certain responsibilities. And remember too, you too are called to do the same. So every qualification virtually there in that list, if you take the whole list of chapter 3... Virtually every qualification, apart from able to teach and care for the church, which is reserved for uh, the shepherds, all of those qualifications are meant for the normal Christian as well. And you can find them in, in various places in Scripture. So remember that you too are called to, be the, to fulfill these characteristics as well as we together display the glory of God to the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that you are a good God and you exercise authority perfectly with all equity, with all knowledge, with all wisdom. So, Lord, for the leaders of this church, the elders and the deacons, Lord, we know that we fall 
uh, far from that mark of your perfect authority. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can have forgiveness of sins. And you tell us that even where we sin, we can confess our sins and you are just and righteous to forgive. So Lord, we pray for the leaders of the church especially that you would make us godly men and godly women. Men who are men and women who are consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ and men and women who ensure by the power of your spirit that the implications of the gospel are being worked through in our lives. Father, we ask that by the service of the church, as we all are called to serve, even though we may not have an official title, we pray, Lord, that by the ways in which we serve, that your gospel will be made known, your character will be displayed to, to places like Hacienda Heights and all the other cities that are represented here, whether they be Whittier or La Puente or Walnut or Pasadena or all, all the cities that are represented here. Lord, we ask that by the ways in which we serve other people, that your gospel would be made clear and your character would be made clear. In your name we pray. Amen.